Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a great episode this week. Our old friend and regular guest, Amos Harel, military correspondent and analyst for Haaretz, will be joining us to discuss Israeli security policy under the new Netanyahu government, including battle lines in the West Bank, a new IDF chief of staff, Iran, Ukraine, and much more. But first, a few thoughts from me. We'll be discussing security affairs in the Palestinian arena with Amos, but obviously the big focus these days in Israel is still the domestic politics and the Netanyahu government's continued plans to undermine the Israeli judicial system. So what's the latest state of play? Number one, public protests have grown week on week and almost on a daily basis. Three weekends ago, 20,000 people showed up to protest in central Tel Aviv, Two weekends ago, it grew to 80,000 people in the cold and rain. And trust me, it was very cold and very rainy and not all that much fun. And then this past weekend, over 130,000 people came out not just in Tel Aviv, but other cities too. The largest demonstration in Israel for over a decade since the 2011 social protest movements, for those who remember it. Another demonstration is set for this Saturday too, which likely, maybe as big, if not bigger. Also this week, we saw the beginning of a private sector revolt led by the high-tech community here in Israel and the warning strike of one hour that was held this past Tuesday. We've also seen the governor of the Bank of Israel and other former senior economic officials come out publicly and warn that these looming plans by the government could severely damage the Israeli economy. Number two, Last week, the Supreme Court disqualified Health and Interior Minister Arya Deri, head of the ultra-Orthodox Shas party, from serving as a cabinet minister in the Netanyahu government due to Arya Deri's prior felonies, most recently his conviction last year for tax fraud. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu complied with the ruling and fired Arya Deri earlier this week, but not before he and the entire coalition made their thoughts very clear about the Supreme Court. Basically, they intimated, who are these elected judges to decide who gets to be a minister in Israel? Never mind Derry's past convictions. Netanyahu also made his intention very clear that he's going to attempt to pass legislation, taking away the court's ability to review government appointments and thereby return Derry to his rightful place at the cabinet table. The entire case, I'd argue, is a microcosm of the larger battle between the government and the judicial legal system and will likely only act as a catalyst for the Netanyahu government's revolutionary plans. So to sum up, the government has shown zero inclination of backing down and the protests, whether on the streets or from literally every economic and judicial and legal and civil society quarter, have grown and the prospects of President Isaac Herzog's stated desire to lower the temperature and to mediate some kind of compromise are, shall we say, uncertain right now. It's also worth mentioning that the opposition seems to care more about fighting amongst itself and scoring cheap political points than actually creating a unified and united front. Good times. Uh, And obviously, this looming constitutional crisis isn't going to be leaving us anytime soon. As President Herzog put it yesterday, this powder keg is on the verge of exploding. To be continued, I'm sure. Let's get to Amos Harrell. Hi, Amos. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. Uh, Many thanks for making it today. Hi, Neri. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, It's always our pleasure, Amos. Uh, So last time you were on was last August. One or two things uh, have changed since then in Israel. Uh, and just for the record, before the flood, yeah. yes, before before the flood, uh, and it was well before the election too. Uh, just for the record, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, so given the crazy pace of events here, one or two things may already have changed before this pod goes up. But I wanted to start here, Amos, with the most recent and current crisis of the past few days, um, at least in the security realm. Uh, and that's the battle over who actually runs things in the West Bank uh, between Defense Minister of Galant and Bezalel Smotrich, who is a minister in the Defense Ministry, uh, as well as being the Finance Minister. So just by way of context for our listeners, last Friday, a handful of settlers 
set up an illegal outpost in the northern West Bank. Smotrich demanded the IDF let the settlers stay. Gallant and the IDF commanders uh, basically ignored him, and Netanyahu actually backed them up. The outpost was taken down that day, and then Smotrich and his religious, religious Zionism party boycotted the subsequent cabinet meeting earlier this week. Uh, and Smotrich said, with some reason, that this was a violation of the coalition agreements that were signed a mere month ago. So Amos, you wrote about this yesterday and basically said that the division of powers for civilian affairs in the West Bank have yet to be worked out. So how do you expect it to be worked out, if at all? And is it sustainable, I guess, politically for Galland, the defense minister, and the IDF, and even Netanyahu, to keep ignoring Smotrich? I'm not sure it will work out. I think this is uh, quite substantial when you talk about the new government. And this is not only a technical issue. It's also not only a power struggle between two um, important ministers. Uh, this is about more than that. Basically, for Netanyahu, the most important thing right now is to go forward with this uh, so-called uh, legal or judicial uh, revolution. That's the most important thing because this is his get-out-of-jail card. Uh, what needs to be understood is that if his legal uh, troubles continue, then within a few uh, years he may be facing uh, jail time. Since this is so urgent and so important, he was willing to um, take along some quite uh, strange bedfellows uh, this time. Smotrich is not new on the scene, but the fact that Bengville became from a, um, has transferred from a persona non grata to um, um, an important minister in the cabinet, it, it says a lot about Netanyahu's current circumstances. Now, considering all that, um, the territories became become uh, have become a very important um, issue. Top, as I said, is the legal struggle. But other than that, what we are about to see in the territories is Smotrich fighting tooth and nail in order to fulfill his own vision or his own dreams of um, larger settlements, uh, legalizing outposts, building new uh, settlements outside uh, of the settlement blocks and so on. But on the other hand, this is exactly the area and these are exactly the issues in which the Americans are not going to play along. Um, what we see right now is that the Biden administration has not um, made the decision yet over their uh, stance regarding the um, um, judicial revolution. Uh, we've heard uh, Tom Knight speak about that. We've heard some, um, um, some uh, sentiments being expressed, but we didn't see Washington coming out publicly against Netanyahu's plans. That's not the same thing as uh, what's happening in the territories. If, indeed, Smotrich moves along with his plans, uh, for instance, building uh, new outposts or, or trying to legalize uh, old ones, I think the um, reaction from the Americans would be quite uh, swift and, and quite vocal. And their counterpart is not Smotrich. We're not about talking to Smotrich or Bengville. I think they'll try to avoid that as much as they can. Uh, their man in Tel Aviv would be Yoav Gallant. And if you think of these of, of the situation as two different vectors, on the one hand, those strange bedfellows, Bankville and uh, Smotrich, pushing forward with everything from settlement plans to um, changing the status quo on the Temple Mount, and on the other hand, the American pressure, this may be an arena in which Netanyahu is facing uh, enormous troubles ahead. Right. Trying to maneuver his way between those two vectors or those two poles. Uh, and to the best of your understanding, really, the IDF and through, by extension, Gallant just ignored Smotrich. And at least this time, Netanyahu sided with Gallant and the IDF. Do you expect that to perhaps change in future? We know that uh, the IDF uh, has yet to, I guess, officially weigh in with their opinion with regard to the various coalition agreements that were signed and the various powers that were handed to Smotrich and, and Bengville as well in the West Bank. Look, this conflict uh, hasn't been solved yet. 
And it's not only uh, Smotrich orders about uh, the illegal outpost. He, um, on Friday, if I'm not mistaken, he tried to give Kogat um, an order to um, maintain things as they are until he gets to the thick of it and until he understands what exactly happened. And of course, as you said, Gallant and Netanyahu and the army ignored him and they um, uh, moved the settlers out of the outpost uh, immediately. There was also another meeting last week in which, in which for the first time, Smotrich met with uh, General Sanalian, the, the Kogat, and his uh, officers. He gave them other directions as well, and none of these directions were implemented until now. This is because the army is actually saying, okay, um, I have two different bosses. You're telling me I have two different bosses, but um, as long as you don't make a decision whether I should obey boss A or boss B, I'm remaining with boss A, meaning uh, Gallant, and I continue to receive orders and obey orders from Gallant through the change of com- through the chain of command, meaning Gallant, uh, the new chief of staff Halevi, and then under them uh, the commander of the central command and uh, the officers at the uh, Kogat. Smotrich hasn't been able to to change this reality, although he has a point, of course, because this is something that was promised to him in the uh, coalition agreements. And Netanyahu, being Netanyahu, yesterday on uh, Tuesday night held a meeting with both Galan Smotrich and um, uh, another minister, Yariv Levin, but no decisions were actually taken. He expects, as far as I can tell, uh, documents from both sides trying to define what they want, and he will settle this sometime in the future. I think it will take him time. And we have to remember in the end, although Gallant is an important member of uh, Netanyahu's cabinet, it's Smotrich who has the actual political power. He's a partner. He's a, mem- a leader of an important party, and without him, there's no coalition. So um, I-, I think the battle we're seeing right now is just the beginning. Probably there will be more incidents like this one. And this is also because Smotrich and even um, uh, Benkvir would be constantly challenged from the right, from people even more extreme uh, than they are, uh, like those uh, uh, people who are trying to establish new outposts and so on. They'll always test them and always try to check whether they're holding to this uh, very strict uh, ideological line or are they uh, making some concessions to the so-called other side, which is actually uh, Netanyahu and Gallant. Yes, uh, they don't want to be seen as moderating while in office. They want to be seen as men of their words, upholding what they all the things they promised to their voters. Uh, but like you said, it remains to be seen and uh, a recipe for for a real uh, clash and a real mess, uh, especially in the West Bank. By the way, for our listeners, Kogat is the coordinator of government activities in the territories. That's the uh, military body that uh, administers and runs uh, civilian affairs in the West Bank. And through Kogat, you also have the civil administration, which is the, I guess, the executive or implementing arm uh, in the West Bank. That's just by FYI. Uh, Amos, just following up on this, you mentioned Itamar Bengvir, who's uh, now the national security minister uh, in charge of the police, as well as the uh, border police. He was a tangential and peripheral player in this recent dust-up over the outpost. Um, his border police forces actually helped evacuate the outpost. Where, to the best of your understanding, does this issue stand right now? Uh doesn't seem that Ben Vero so far has made any radical changes with regard to the border police, especially, I guess, the border police operating in the West Bank. Is that right? Yes. And I think there's a difference between Smotrich and Benkvir. In the end, uh, Benkvir is a troll. A troll. Benkvir, he may be um, um, an extreme right winger, but it's mostly about provocation and attention. While uh, when you look at Smotrich, this is somebody with an ideology, a man with a plan, somebody with ambitions regarding actual change in changes in reality. Well, I think that is mostly about gaining attention and becoming more and more uh, important. Uh, both of these guys have ambitions. I think both of them see themselves as strange as it may seem to uh, American ears, see themselves as uh, possible future prime ministers. Uh, but I think there's quite um, yeah, let, let, let's chew on that one for a second. But look, 
a lot I, of things that we thought were impossible yeah, just a few months ago. Two, three now. years ago, um, Benkvir couldn't get elected to the Knesset. And now he's a, a senior minister, somebody who's, of course, interviewed day and night on Israeli TV. This is part of his uh, success to, to begin with. But anyway, um, I think Smotrich is much more serious about his plans. With Bengvir, of course, he's a Kahana student. He was a, a Kahana loyalist when he was uh, very young, remained a member of uh, Kach uh, later on, appears to have slightly matured, or at least this is, what he's, uh, this is the message he's uh, sending. But other than that, it's about his own persona and his own success. And he will look for provocations. He will look for areas in which he can maintain this constant, uh, constant uh, presence in the Israeli media and so on. Um, but I think Smotrich has uh, much more far-reaching plans. And I think that this is much more of a challenge to Netanyahu and Gallant as they try to to keep a, a lid on on things, so to speak, and, and to prevent uh, things from uh, escalating completely in the West Bank. Uh, regarding Benvir, as far as I can tell, he's you know he's really carried away by his uh, new position and by his new major role in Israeli politics. Look at the amount of respect he's been getting. Look at how many microphones are there for every time he sets foot anywhere. This is extremely important for him. And I'm not so sure that issues such as um, legalizing outposts or building new ones are so critical for him. I think he will emphasize other issues, whether it's law and order, whether it's fighting crime in Arab communities inside Israel, uh, in places like the Negev or the Galilee, uh, whether it's the Temple Mount, as much as Netanyahu would allow him uh, to interfere with the um, unstable situation there. But these are the issues in which he's going to be vocal. When we um, discuss settlements, it will be Smotrich leading the way. And Smotrich is, uh, as I said, a much more of a serious character with much more far-reaching uh, plans. Okay, that's uh, good to lay out there. And, uh, and yes, uh, we also have to emphasize this is a situation of Netanyahu's own making, uh, handing both Smotrich and Ben-Gvir uh, these far-reaching and very uh, influential positions at the top of the Israeli government. But I, 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 I still fail to answer your question about uh, border police and so on. Hmm. We should mention that the in the coalition uh, agreements, uh, first of all, he became, he has a new office, a new ministry, which is different than before them, the so-called national security um, office, which means that he has more authority than uh, previous uh, ministers who held uh, a slightly different uh, title. And also he has, he was promised direct authority over uh, the border police at large and specifically border police companies which serve in the territories in the West Bank. And this is something, of course, that made the um, army quite um, stressful um, the former chief of staff, Aviv Kochavi, uh, General Kochavi, gave a lot of interviews when he left office last week. Including to you. And he kept emphasizing this could not uh, be maintained in any way and how any border police units staying in the, territory, in the territories would have to answer to one commander only, which is the military chain of command and not uh, somebody like Bengfield. So um, we haven't seen this uh, issue escalating yet, but we can think of a scenario in which, for instance, uh, because of a uh, rise in uh, criminal uh, incidents in the Negev, uh, Benkvir decides that this is top priority right now, and he would um, move some border police units from the West Bank to the Negev. What happens then? Um, does the IDF have to call immediately um, reserve battalions in order to um, maintain the situation in the West Bank? Uh, do they negotiate with uh, Bankville over where's uh, the, the most urgent uh, area in which the border police should act? This is extremely um, important from the IDF's point of view. We haven't seen Bankville escalating the debate yet. Again, I suspect that this is because for him it's more about the actual statements than about the reality on the ground. But we will see uh, friction over these matters. We will see debates over uh, where and how the policemen should be deployed. 
And especially, I think, at one point or another, because Ben Gvir is such a populist, he would have to vocally show his support for the troops regarding rules of engagement or a certain incident that would be filmed in Jerusalem or in the West Bank. And this is where he can find himself in direct conflict with the army chain of command. Right, right, right. Uh, so another potential source of friction and conflict uh, and a mess stemming from uh, the promises given to these uh, individuals in the coalition agreements. Uh, Amos, you alluded to it, but we should actually get into it in more detail, that uh, the other big news of the past week and a half is that there is a new IDF chief of staff. Uh, so Aviv Kochavi finished his four-year term last Monday and Helsia Levy uh, replaced him in the position uh, as I just said, you were one of the people who actually interviewed Kohavi as he was finishing up. And at least in the interview with you and a few other interviews, he made it very clear, Kohavi did, that uh, the IDF uh, should be kept out of politics, that the IDF uh, would adhere to the principle of one chain of military command, uh, and that the IDF chief of staff should be the one deciding on things like, you said, uh, rules of engagement, uh, the appointment of senior officers, and the like. So from your coverage of Kohavi over the past four years and your interview with him uh, earlier this month, how would you sum up his term as chief of staff? And what can we expect now from Helsia Levy? Kohavi is quite a character. Uh, he's quite outspoken, although he uh, tried to stay out of the media's way most of his uh, term. These interviews he gave were actually the first interviews ever for him as a chief of staff during the whole four-year uh, term. Um, he implemented quite a lot of changes in the army. In the end, he had a vision of how the IDF should look in 2025, 2030, 2035. Uh, a lot of this um, relies on uh, technology, on uh, intelligence, on standoff uh, capabilities, meaning using uh, air powers and uh, similar capabilities to inflict uh, pain or force on the enemy while trying to avoid uh, ground incursions into enemy uh, territory. So a lot of these plans are somewhere in the middle, some implemented, some not. He was a lot of his plans uh, were delayed when COVID hit. The pandemic meant that there were changes in the structure of the budget and that the army was not getting the amount of money uh, it thought it needed. Um, a lot of the government's attention was, of course, focused on issues such as health and education and less over uh, plans for the changes in the army. Uh, regarding Halevi, I I think he's quite a conservative when uh, we discuss uh, such issues as uh, force building. I think he would probably maintain the same path that uh, Kohavi had uh, established, but it would have a lot to do, a lot more to do with the reality on the ground, uh, with trying to um, um, co convince the army itself and the uh, lower ranks as well that they're part of this ongoing plan and that they're part of these uh, ambitions, and that this should move forward in order to improve the IDF's uh, capabilities. Uh, having said all that, um, there are other issues that Kohavi avoided, like the plague, mostly um, changes in the IDF uh, um, manpower structure. Nothing was done over this for uh, years and years and years. I think that Herty's problem is that maybe on his watch, uh, some of these conflicts um, may rise and would force him to take decisions which may be unpopular, if you want. We can discuss that uh, later on. And then, of course, there's the politics. Kohavi, as I said, tried to avoid that as much as he could until those final interviews in which he took a stand regarding Smotrich, regarding Benkvir, and so on. He also said on record that he was uh, that he has coordinated his positions with Halevi and that what he said actually represented Halevi's opinions as well uh but he he got off quite easily it's it ended without uh, a direct conflict i i think nobody there were a lot of people who wanted to become chief of staff in recent years some even uh, tried to compete for the job against Halevi but i don't think anybody any general or former general in, in the army 
finds himself uh, jealous uh, of Halevi this week because really it's probably one of the most difficult, if not the most, uh, uh, if not the worst jobs in Israel uh, right now, trying to handle the army, to control the army, to navigate the army in such uncharted territories, considering the political crisis, the legal crisis, and the potential for a sort of a perfect storm, which would arise because of the territories, I think nobody would like to replace Alevi right now. Yes, he has a, a very difficult job. And uh, by the quirk of, I guess, the calendar of the politics here and also the IDF, uh, Halevi entered into the position of IDF chief of staff just as the new government, the new Netanyahu government, was actually finding its footing and also coming into office. So they basically are uh, finding their footing at the exact same time. Uh, and yes, amidst uh, general kind of uh, political, social, constitutional crisis, let's put it that way, at the moment. All right, we'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at israelpolicyforum.org support. Amos, you alluded to the issue of uh, civil-military relations under Kohavi and I know you've written about this extensively, that he really tried to stay out of that particular issue, never really weighed in on uh, trying to keep the military really out of politics or actually standing up for certain, I guess, nonpartisan and neutral military values amidst uh, a lot of kind of far-right populist rhetoric, uh, sometimes emanating from people like Smotrich and Benville. Do you expect Alevi to continue this, I guess, more quiet, conservative path like Kojavi? Or do you think Alevi, both because of the current moment and his own personality, will actually get up there and actually pronounce publicly and give public statements about what he believes uh, should be and should not be done uh, with the army in this current political moment? I'm not sure it's entirely up to him. Um, if we look at the situation, we have to go back to Kohavi's uh, predecessor, Gadi Eisenkot, who meanwhile uh, recently turned into a politician and is now a, a Knesset member and part of the opposition. Uh, the touchiest subjects on issues of uh, Israeli army and Israeli society has always been what's usually defined as, as the uh, IDF's uh, core values or moral values and so on, which is actually how to understand the necessary rules of engagement when dealing with terrorists, when uh, um, policing the West Bank and so on. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, still remember the Azaria case of 2016, um, the soldier from the Kfir Brigade who was caught on camera uh, shooting from point blank and hitting and, and killing um, a terrorist who was already injured, somebody who, a Palestinian in Hebron, who uh, tried to kill two of his uh, um, colleagues, um, wounded two soldiers, then was injured himself and was obviously uh, dying at that stage. While Lazaria, the soldier who came later to the scene, just shot him in front of the camera. And this, of course, created a huge scandal um, in the Israeli society. In the end, he spent, I think, something close to 18 months in jail. Uh, but uh, it, was in, it was for manslaughter and not for uh, murder. And it was Eisenkot who took a stand, who said, this does not... Um, uh, this is not part of our uh, uh, rules of engagement. This is not what we expect 
expect our fighters to do. And since he's uh, broken the code, he will have to pay a price for this. And he would have to be disciplined. And what was amazing to see was, although this was understood perfectly well by all the colonels and uh, generals under Kohavi, the Israeli public fought the opposite. According to all public opinion polls, about 65% of Israelis supported the soldier in spite of him committing this crime in front of the cameras and not the uh, IDF's top brass. And of course, Netanyahu zigzagged his way through this conflict and in the end, mostly expressed sympathy, sympathy for the soldier and his family and not for the IDF. So I think the IDF was top brass was quite traumatized by the whole issue. Once Kohavi came into office, he tried the best he could to avoid such issues. There were hardly any investigations regarding um, similar uh, or somewhat similar incidents in the West Bank ever since. And Kohavi himself avoided any talk that would uh, be... Um, uh, um, seen as, um, as somewhat political until those last statements that I've uh, mentioned. Regarding Alevi, it remains to be seen. But as I said, I'm not sure that he would have a choice. I think uh, the events themselves would uh, probably take control of everything pretty quickly. And in order to keep up with events, he would have to publicly speak every now and then. He's avoiding it right now. He's keeping a low profile for the first two weeks in office. For instance, he didn't uh, attend those meetings uh, with Netanyahu regarding the, the battle between uh, Smotrich and Gallant. But I think in the end, he wouldn't have a choice. He would have to address some of these matters. And at one point or another, he would find himself on a path to uh, direct collusion with the extreme right because these are the rules of the game right now. Nobody can avoid that. Um, around the uh, among the IDF generals, yeah, um, and everyone usually is uh, on a collision path with the Israeli right and the far right. Uh, whenever, uh, whoever, whatever official, whatever institution uh, says something that they don't like, uh, that's also, I think, uh, part and parcel of the of the game at the current moment in Israeli politics. Um, Amos, just on Alevi and what we what he may be looking at coming down the pike. Uh, the IDF military intelligence uh, put out their assessment for the coming year uh, last month, uh, so in December of 2022 for the coming calendar year. Uh, Iran was deemed the biggest threat, uh, not a surprise there, but a close second uh, was the Palestinian arena, with an emphasis on the West Bank, actually. And the prevailing assessment uh, from military intelligence and other analysts is that Come March and April, uh, the holiday period with Ramadan and Passover overlapping yet again, we may see another explosion uh, on top of the nearly year-long escalation in the West Bank that we've already seen since last spring. Uh, do you share this assessment? Are you still uh, as pessimistic as many of us were or have been with regard to, I guess, this coming spring? Look, I am to some extent, but I have to mention that... Um, in the long run, if we look back all the way back to late 2015, the Army's military intelligence at that time uh, provided the same kind of warning. They even called it a strategic warning, saying that things may blow up in the Palestinian arena. And this has never materialized completely. There were, of course, ups and downs. There was the um, serious wave of attacks, terrorist attacks between 2015 and 2016. Then we had escalation in Gaza in 2021. And we have the current um, events that you've mentioned, uh, a wave, a new wave of terrorist incidents that uh, began uh, late last March, has continued for about 10 months. Uh, there were more than 30 Israeli um, casualties, more than 30 Israeli deaths in those incidents, and more than 150 Palestinians who died in the West Bank during the same time. So things are bad enough as they are. Is there a potential for them to get worse? Of course. It has to do with the new government. Is it, as always, it has to do with religious conflict, specifically on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, specifically, as you mentioned, around Ramadan and Pesach, which would be uh, late March, early April. And it also has to do with the fact that the Palestinian Authority, someone we, we, we haven't mentioned yet, uh, <laughs> 
um, uh, Abbas uh, would have uh, a problem um, of uh, controlling the West Bank, considering everything around him, being it his age, being it the economic situation, or the corruptions, uh, the corruption around him. Considering all that, you have all the different um, parts of what could, in the end, um, join together as a sort of a perfect storm. Will it actually happen exactly during Ramadan in early April, exactly during Passover? I don't know. I do know that it's getting very, very hard to control this so-called equation with so many things uh, happening at the same time. Yeah, I think that's an honest answer. Uh, as I try to explain to people, uh, predicting uh, escalations in the Palestinian arena, especially it's not uh, it's not a science. Uh, it's more of an art, uh, but nobody can quite know for sure how uh, how things will play out. Uh, and like you said, there are, there are enough uh, inputs, negative inputs to go into it that uh, could actually lead to an escalation, uh, especially given the state of the Palestinian Authority and also uh, policies coming out of the new uh, Netanyahu government. Um, but the joke that I heard, Amos, uh, you may have heard it too, uh, from a from a Palestinian friend, is that you know there's no reason to for us, i.e., the Palestinians, to actually escalate or. Uh, cause some kind of security situation uh, because the Jews are doing a good enough job fighting amongst themselves right now. So that's a gallows black humor. Look, I'm sure that Palestinians are enjoying some of this. On the other hand, um, I I probably, I would probably assume that to some extent they envy Israeli democracy. The fact that actually hundreds of thousands of people could actually march on the street and demand um, um, action against the government, um, you know, we're better off than the Palestinians are, whether it's because of the occupation or because of the domestic political situation inside the West Bank. It's the same Abbas who rules the West Bank, no longer the Gaza Strip, since uh, 2005, while elections were only held once in 2006. Right, yes. So I'm not sure that the Palestinians... um, are necessarily thinking that uh, their situation is better off uh, than ours. But yes, in a very Jewish way, we're making it very, very hard for ourselves. But that's that's another that's a matter for another discussion. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, yes. Well, we won't get into that at the moment. We didn't bring you on here to discuss the uh, the legal issues and the constitutional crisis. Uh, but of course, feel free to weigh in if you like. Um, we did bring you here also to touch on. U.S.-Israel security ties, and I wanted to get your thoughts on Iran. Uh, As we speak, there's a major multi-day military exercise going on here in Israel, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, with the IDF and the U.S. military central command uh, called Juniper Oak. Uh, We're seeing infantry forces, missiles, uh, naval vessels, and over 140 aircraft, including strategic bombers, F-35s, long-range refuelers, all taking part in this exercise. Uh, Seems pretty impressive, I guess, Amos, but what can we or should we read into this exercise? Look, to begin with, it's more impressive than the previous uh, exercise. Uh, That was held in December. Israel emphasized at that time the fact that the dozens of planes uh, uh, were involved and so on. And then I asked one of the generals, well, uh, you're telling us that the Americans are participating, but how many planes are actually, how many American planes are actually there? It turns out that there was one refueling airplane, and it was only um, the older version, the KC-135, uh, uh, which was uh, taking part of the, of the exercise. That was the reality more than a month ago. This time, with CENTCOM involved, it's a much more serious matter. Um, and there are dozens of different American planes uh, taking part, including uh, quite a few KC-46, which is the newer version of the refueling planes, something that Israel is about to purchase f- from the United States and about to receive the first planes, I think, by late 2025. So this is serious business. This is sending a message to Iran and so on. This is the Americans telling the Iranians that they're they're willing to um, uh, train with the Israelis and go further with uh, 
uh, more aggressive scenarios and so on. Does this mean actually that the Biden administration wants to bomb Iranian nuclear sites at one point or another? I think not. I think that the new nuclear agreement is now off the table completely. And this is Tehran's fault. We can discuss that later if you'd like. But other than that, it's about sending message of deterrence. It's not about uh, intentions. It's not about the Americans agreeing to BB's dreams of a joint attack against the nuclear sites. It's uh, the Americans saying, look, these are the Israelis. They're our friends. We need to help them practice and prepare themselves to the worst case scenario. And we're also willing to send a message to Tehran in order to keep those mullahs on their toes and make them understand that they're making dangerous decisions that could end um, in, in, in trouble for them. It doesn't mean that the Americans are seriously planning for attack. I don't think it's in the cards in any way uh, right now. And we will have to see in the, the coming uh, weeks uh, the different statements being made, the way the uh, Pentagon and the White House analyze the situation, what they think of the joint exercise, and the way the Israelis would try pushing the envelope and trying to um, um, present that to the world as something that uh, presents that that actually means uh, a, a, an actual uh, change in strategy. Now, allow me to remain doubtful and suspicious over this. I'm not. I don't think that we're anytime soon are going to face a, a joint American-Israeli strike. And even the chances of uh, an Israeli unilateral strike remain quite low uh, at this moment. Having said all that, we have to admit that the Iranians are actually moving quite ahead uh, with their plans and that they're actually closer than any time before to producing the nuclear bomb. It's not the end of the world, but the situation is much more serious than it was uh, five or ten years ago. Uh, yes, the irony, I guess, of uh, Netanyahu's uh, Iran policy and then the successor to Netanyahu, both Bennett and Yair Lapid, continuing Netanyahu's Iran policy, uh, arriving at the point now where Iran's nuclear program is even more advanced than it ever was in the past, uh, especially uh, in the wake of the initial and original Iran nuclear agreement. But I think uh, that's a discussion for, for a different time Amos, uh, but just I wanted to touch on something you said. There is a debate that you're part of, Amos, about Israel's actual capabilities to strike Iran's nuclear program alone, i.e. without U.S. assistance. Um, do you still believe in what you've written in the past, that uh, it's a very remote chance that Israel, as of right now, has that capability uh, no matter what uh, certain IDF officers and Israeli leaders say publicly and want the world to believe? Yes, I think the capabilities are quite limited. It doesn't mean that in a worst-case scenario, Israel wouldn't decide to act. But if you go back to the same kind of debate that was held almost every year, every summer between 2009 and 2012, you remember in the end, it was the army's assessment at that time that the Israeli an Israeli unilateral attack could only delay the Iranian nuclear program by about 18 months. Now, things have changed since then. The Iranians have um, new capabilities, more advanced uh, centrifuges. They have more and more sites which are underground and uh, protected. So the question remains, even if Israel has improved quite a lot, as we know, the Israeli army and the Air Force hardly practiced for this between 2015 and 2021, how much damage can you actually bring? And then you have to factor into the equation other things to consider, whether it's the American reaction, will there be a support from the White House, what kind of retaliation are we facing from Iran and Hezbollah? Would this mean a new war in Lebanon? Would this mean thousands of rockets on the Israeli home front launched every day from uh, Lebanon and Syria? So these are very serious possible consequences that Israel need to, needs to uh, discuss. I think the debate is slightly more serious now after being neglected for about five to six years and after a lot of rhetoric coming from the Netanyahu circles which had promises that were never uh, there was never a chance of implementing them. Netanyahu at that time believed that uh, persuading Trump to pull out of the agreement 
would either mean that the uh, Iranian economy would collapse under the sanctions or that because of all the pressure, the mullahs would go crazy, order some kind of a provocation against the United States. And then Trump, who was president at, at that time, would react and, and do our uh, dirty job for us, uh, so to speak. None of these two uh, scenarios or possibilities ever materialized. And then Israel found itself in a situation in which the agreement is no longer on the table. Uh, the Iranians are in breach of the agreement. They continue or resumed in reaching uh, uranium uh, to uh, high levels. And they're practically closer to their goal than ever before. While we more or less fell asleep for a few years and didn't actually prepare for the, this uh, worst case scenario. So I think that there's no doubt that Israel needs to improve um, while uh, preparing for these uh, issues, that it needs to train, it needs to exercise. As much as we can, we need the American cooperation and support. But there's quite a long way from saying all that and actually believing that a strike is um, a realistic uh, probability at the moment. Uh, final question for you, Amos, on U.S.-Israel security ties. Last week, the New York Times reported that the U.S. had moved a large chunk of the artillery shells it has stored in Israel to Ukraine uh, to aid the Ukrainian war effort. Uh, Israel made it very clear that these were American munitions and an American decision, uh, not a direct Israeli assistance to the Ukrainian military. Um, so I wanted to use this anecdote to answer the question on many people's minds. Uh, do you think the Netanyahu government will stick with the prior Israeli policy? on the Ukraine war set up by Naftali Bennett and continued more or less with Yair Lapid, uh, basically Israel is not going to supply military equipment to Ukraine, uh, lest Israel anger Russia. Do you think that's a fair prediction, I guess, of how Netanyahu will handle the Ukraine war? For the time being, yes. I think that as much as Netanyahu can help it, he would avoid a change of path uh, regarding Ukraine. Uh, we shouldn't forget his original sentiments towards Putin. They had quite a good working relationship for more than a decade. And I don't think that Netanyahu is really invested uh, personally or emotionally in anything that hasn't um, got a lot to do with Netanyahu himself. He may shed a tear for the fate of the uh, poor Ukrainians, but I don't think he's willing to uh, invest any kind of Israeli effort, direct effort. He doesn't want to make Putin angry. He doesn't want uh, Israeli weapons uh, to be involved in the killing of Russian soldiers or, uh, God forbid, the uh, Russian citizens uh, near Ukraine. On the other hand, there's the question of the American pressure and the attitude and opinions of, of the Western countries um, Zelensky knows what he's doing. He keeps making demands and he keeps talking about uh, emotional and moral uh, accountability. Um, the, the question remains what exactly uh, Biden, uh, the president and the administration are seeking from us, what Washington would uh, expect Israel to do and what it's willing to, to give in return. If, for instance, there was a case in which Israel needed immediate American help regarding Iran and, on the other hand, was expected to assist, to further assist the Ukrainians in return, maybe a deal could be in the making. But right now, since Israel is not demanding anything directly from the United States, and since there's all this ongoing discussion over the domestic crisis and over the possibility of escalation in territories and so on, I don't think that it's top priority for anyone. And as long as Netanyahu can keep a low profile uh, regarding Ukraine, he'll try to maintain this because this is only a headache for him. There's nothing that he can actually achieve from uh, uh, changing the Israeli policy. Uh, my personal opinion from a moral point of view as, is that Israel should do much more. But I don't think that Netanyahu thinks in these terms right now. Got you. And the fact that the Iranians are now actively involved in the Ukraine war and providing missiles and drones to the Russians, will that change Israeli calculus? Or is it uh, something to keep an eye on, an issue of concern, but won't actually fundamentally change the Israeli position? I don't think that this will mean a fundamental change in Israeli policy regarding Ukraine. Of course, Israel makes use 
off the fact that the Iranians have chosen sides and are, are on Putin's side and are delivering weapons and so on. This is something that Israel could use to its advantage when it calls on the West not to go back to negotiations over the nuclear agreement. Uh, when you mentioned the uh, domestic hijab protests in Iran and the way it was uh, so brutally dealt with and so on, these are issues that Israel can use as talking points in order to persuade the West not to negotiate and not to compromise with Iran. But it doesn't affect Israel's policy uh, towards Russia-Ukraine, as far as I can tell. The Ukrainians themselves are saying, look, at least give us jamming uh, equipment which could hurt uh, Iranian drones, give us some intelligence that could help us fight the Iranian drones, and so on. I don't know enough about this, but I think that Israel was not willing to go all the way. It may have provided some assistance, but it has not been direct, and they still kept to that same principle of not using kinetic uh, Israeli weapons in order to shoot down uh, Russian weapons or kill uh, Russian military. Okay. Uh, that is very good to know, and I'm sure uh, an issue and a question that was on many people's minds. Uh, Amos, as always, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be with us here, uh, as always. And we should also tell our listeners that you, are, you aren't 100%, you're a bit under the weather, but even uh, 70% of Amos Harel is better than most people's 120%. So we do appreciate you coming on, uh, and hopefully we'll have you on in future uh, I was going to say to discuss more positive issues, but uh, these days we'll take what we can get here in Israel. Yeah. Okay. I apologize myself for my voice. Uh, hopefully that would, at least that I can assure you would be improved uh, quite soon. <laughs> we look forward to it. Thanks again, Amos. Thank you. Okay, many thanks again to Amos Arel for his generous time, especially this week. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening.